It's Friday, December the 16th. In this episode of Going Viral, Dr. Gary Groman will speak about Atagi and what it's doing, a plan B if the vaccines fail to respond, the lab leak theory, and other interesting issues. Uh, Gary, you've been with us many times. Briefly tell us about yourself. Thank you, David, again for the invitation. Uh, I'm a board member for the Immunisation uh, Coalition and also an adjunct professor at the University of Sydney at the moment. And I also consult to the World Health Organisation on influenza and COVID. And prior to all this, um, I was with the TGA for 17 years in the regulatory space. And prior to that, I um, had a fairly long research career. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Uh, Gary, I've got a few questions about ATAGI, what it's doing and what it's meant to do. May I just hand this issue over to you and talk us through it? Okay, well, I think it's probably best to start with regulation. Uh, The TGA uh, assesses the dossiers that are presented to it by industry and uh, makes a decision as to whether registration goes on, Mm -hmm. uh, goes ahead. Now, TGA does not decide what age groups um, or what vaccines should be used as a priority or anything like that. Mm -hmm. All these kinds of decisions are done by ATAGI, which is a group of generally clinical people uh, that are uh, chosen uh, uh, by government uh, to sit on this committee and the data, which the TGA has already seen, is reassessed, if you like. And then um, various recommendations are made. And this is what a target does. So it would make a recommendation for children or for uh, older adults, for example, or it may make a recommendation as to which COVID vaccine might be used as a priority in which group. It'll be things of that nature that a target would make a decision on. I guess my question now is, as we had into a more advanced and different phase of the pandemic. How do you see its work and where it's headed? It's been a, a bit controversial, I suppose. Um, I don't want to criticise Atagi too much, but the fact is that many mistakes have been made, firstly with the AstraZeneca vaccine and the interpretation of that data, and then later with the mRNA vaccines. For example, the AstraZeneca vaccine was a very good vaccine and could have, in fact, been used Uh, for all adult age groups and particularly the vulnerable. And although there were some reports of TTS, the risk of that was incredibly low. And what we needed was an education campaign through the GP network to educate those getting the vaccine, which is something perhaps we missed out on as we went to uh, chemists and we went to um, uh, nurses and other providers, uh, pharmacists, all of whom did a great job. But it also needed that education part, which a GP can give, that says, well, if you get these symptoms, X, Y, and Z, then please come back or please go to emergency to have this assessed. And it's a matter of explaining. It's the same with the myocarditis uh, for the mRNA. It's simply a matter of explaining what the symptoms might be and to seek immediate attention when it comes to health, seek a treatment. So that really wasn't done so well, unfortunately. And when you look back on it, you would think, yes, we could have actually used AstraZeneca, gotten it out there to many, many more people, probably saved many, many more lives. And although there were 12 or 13 deaths, I think, attributed to the TTS, it wasn't 
really because of the vaccine in the sense that it was more uh, of our lack of education of people. Now you're talking about, um, I mean, no vaccine should cause death. So that is a problem in itself. It certainly should never be bypassed in any way. Vaccines yeah. should never cause death. But in this case, they caused the TTS, which then led to death because of basically miseducation. And I think <clears throat> that was a pity. And we could have had a lot more people vaccinated with AstraZeneca uh, had Atagi waited when it came to their decisions on age groups uh, and the use of that particular vaccine. We also had a lot of data at the time coming out of England, not that we ignored it, but I don't think it was taken into account properly. And Atagi tended to react rather than be proactive, in my view. You know, the same happened also with the mRNA. Now, admittedly, it was wartime and many decisions were made quickly, pressure, I imagine, from various governments around Australia, which I personally think is unfortunate, which all comes to the point that everybody, I think, in the scientific community generally feels that we need something beyond the target. We need a CDC. We need a group of people that's entirely independent, not people that work for this government or that government, <laughs> but are entirely independent and can make these decisions independent of any influence or government or pharmacy or, or, or pharma or big pharma or anything like this, be totally independent like the TGA, for example, or regulators in general are independent of their stakeholders and provide for the whole of Australia, not just one state or another, or not to be interpreted by one state or another or one premier or health minister or another, but a decision for the country uh, that everybody is bound to. And the people in the CDC or the potential CDC, if that ever comes about, would make that decision just like they do in the US with CDC and the National Institutes of Health. They have a slightly different role again. But uh, it's that kind of independence that then makes a decision for the nation uh, that's really important that the whole of the nation abides by rather than you know, one state closing a border, another one keeping it open, one stopping visitors to nursing homes and attendance at funerals and weddings and so on, and another having an entirely different set of rules. It, you know, was terribly chaotic. Not that that's the fault of Atagi, but it's the uh, fault of um, governments of the day, particularly state governments, in my view, which was a real pity. Uh, and Atagi had no influence on that, basically. Mm. And that also was a pity. And that's why I think we need something much stronger, far more independent, entirely at arm's length from any authority that can make these decisions rationally and sensibly on a scientific and medical basis. One of the things I noticed, Gary, was how easy it was for political leaders to garner particular opinions from medical specialists and split our scientific and medical community pretty much into camps. And um, uh, we seem to hear from one camp, but there were many belonging to the other that remained voiceless. Yes, um, that's right. <laughs> I think, again, the CDC would solve that. Yes. You know, yes. such an urgent need now for us to consider as a nation um, entirely independent health group that would cover the nation, particularly in the fight against the pandemic, and give general advice all round. Mm. Um, so at the moment, we've got all sorts of institutes. I'm not criticising any of them, but everything from universities to the Kirby Institute, the Doty Institute, uh, many in Queensland, South Australia, West Australia, all these different groups 
uh, many epidemiologists, um, immunologists, virologists, all with differing opinions. Mm. And um, all of them, too, with vested interests, I don't mind saying. And it's very, or, or influences. And it's very, very important uh, that we get clear, independent advice that's purely run on data, scientific medical advice that can go then through the colleges uh, and uh, through to GP networks like yours and so on. And so everybody gets the same sheet to read off. Yep rather than, oh, I'm in New South Wales, so this is what I'm going to do. I've just driven to the ACT and the rules are different here. And I've just driven down to Melbourne and, you know, the rules are different again. Mm. This is not serving the nation, in, in, in my view. It's also not serving public health. And the consequences of it are now obvious in terms of diseases, undiagnosed, operations that have not occurred, mental health issues that have arisen in various places that we never expected, et cetera, et cetera. The consequences of these actions that we undertook earlier on are now manifesting very, very clearly and uh, really don't need any further explanation. And it's such a pity that all this has occurred because, frankly, of erroneous decisions earlier mm. when it came to the use of the vaccine and, and how good these vaccines were. There's certainly nothing wrong with any of them in terms of efficacy and protection for those that are unhealthy or those suffering immunosenescence and so on. Very, very important to protect all those risk groups. And uh, we could have done that very, very easily with the very first vaccine we had if it had been allowed to be used. Uh, one day we hope that there might be some kind of a royal commission into how we manage this pandemic and look for real change. But just moving on, Gary, um, you had said earlier, many times actually, that no vaccines should cause death. And we have now moved into, as I did allude to, a different phase of the pandemic now, whilst we're getting a lot of infections, not so many deaths. And so we, out of the kind of wartime scenario that you were mentioning, the current vaccines that we have, the mRNA ones, they do reduce severity in hospitalizations and deaths, but not transmissions. So how do you marry all these thoughts about the fact that mRNA vaccines may very rarely cause a significant complication, and yet we're not looking at a um, inverted commas wartime scenario? Question, has the mRNA vaccines time come to an end? Well, look, I, I believe it has a personal view. Not everybody would agree with that. But we've had mRNA vaccines for some time, but Australia is still a hotspot around the world. Uh, compared to the rest of the world per capita, uh, we have the highest rate of COVID transmissions in the, almost in the world, certainly one of the highest. Globally, we've seen over 600 million confirmed cases, if the World Health Organization data is correct, and that would be an underestimate. We've seen over... 6 million deaths, which is a very low case fatality rate, I, I might add. Mm -hmm. uh, in Australia, we've seen over 10 million cases and 16,000 deaths. Again, a very low case fatality rate, fortunately, as, you know, all the data comes in. Mm. And, you know, in the times when we didn't have vaccines or vaccine rollout was slow, which was essentially 2020 um, into part of 2021, we actually didn't have that many COVID cases and deaths because of restrictions. When we lifted restrictions and introduced vaccines and then lifted restrictions further, our cases started to increase from September 
2021 through to November 2022. That's the data in front of me now that I'm looking at. And mm. the, graphs, the graphs are rather stark after that September date. Um, and it's the same with the deaths. After that September date, the deaths started to rise. It wasn't because of vaccines. You know, what effect did they really have? It was the restrictions and the use of masks and not getting into, uh, not being involved with large crowds, being careful when you move to nursing homes, the use of sanitizer, education and awareness is what kept the virus at bay. But you cannot keep it at bay forever because of the other consequences uh, in the community that we spoke about earlier. It may be economic, but the health consequences are also very, very serious. And in spite of the fact that over, oh gosh, what would it be, 90-something percent vaccination rate in Australia uh, for two courses, and I think about 70% for three courses, and now the community doesn't want to have any more mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is that they cause mild adverse reactions. And I don't know how often I've heard anecdotally, oh, I've had an mRNA vaccine and, and I feel really sick and I need to take a week off work or a couple of days off work. There are consequences to these vaccines, even if we get them, and they do not stop transmission. They don't do a lot for severity, for mild severity, but they do a lot uh, for those that are vulnerable for serious outcomes. Mm. That's important to know. We also need to look at seroprevalence. And I've shown the data before from England, Public Health England, that have shown that 97% uh, of people, no matter what age group you look at, have had antibodies either due to vaccination or due to getting a natural infection. Mm -hmm. And when in children, they found that over 80% of primary school children who were unvaccinated, 80% of primary school that were unvaccinated, had antibodies. Therefore, mm -hmm. subclinical infection is rife. And in secondary school pupils, they found nearly 100% had antibodies, but 65% uh, of those uh, were vaccinated. Uh, and the others were not. So prevalence of antibody um, is uh, huge around the world. England's just one snapshot, but there was a recent snapshot in Australia, David, from the Kirby Institute and also NCIRS at Westmead. And anti-nuclear capsid seroprevalence was highest among blood donors aged 18 to 29 at 27%. And it's important to know that spike antibodies, uh, you know, basically universally detected in vaccinated individuals. But if 65% of individuals have got nuclear capsid antibodies, that signifies past infection. And that's what NCIRS found in children and, in children and adolescents. And they found that 64% of people under 19 years, 0 to 19 years, have also been infected with COVID-19. So this virus is infecting a lot of people subclinically, something we rarely talk about, but something that's very, very important. It means that you're getting a very different immune response to a subclinical or clinical infection than you are to a single spike protein that's been yeah. put into a muscle. So a spike protein versus many proteins that are or many epitopes on the virus there uh, is very important to understand the difference. So I think what's going to happen is that as Omicron keeps moving, giving fairly mild disease, people will get antibodies and importantly, the other most important part of the immune response following T-cell responses, memory B-cell and so on, all important. Uh, immunogenicity, all important, but immunogenicity is not everything. 
It's the T cells and long-term immunity that we need to induce. And the spike proteins can only go so far. That's why I think mRNA is going to come to an end at mm -hmm. some point because it cannot stop transmission. We desperately need a vaccine that will stop transmission. Then we will get on top of this virus, completely on top of it. And the vulnerable groups will be even better protected and the death rate should fall dramatically as will the case rate. There was a nasal vaccine that seems to have disappeared. Are there particular vaccines that can do this job for us in the future that stops transmission? Look, I think there are, David. There, unfortunately, a lot of them are still on the drawing board rather than being in the pipeline. And the intranasal vaccine using either live or killed virus uh, or even the proteins uh, seem to only go so far. Look, there's a little more data to come there. I'm fairly excited myself about uh, gamma-irradiated vaccines. So the idea here is instead of using chemicals to kill the virus and then using the virus to create an immune response, <clears throat> you use gamma irradiation that only knocks out the nucleic acid, has no chemical added. So the protein structure, secondary and tertiary structures are entirely preserved. And that would give you the best immune response. And the animal work there is looking fantastic, giving both immunogenicity good immunogenicity as well as good T-cell responses. So I'm very excited about that, but I have to say it's on the drawing board. There's a long way to go. Uh, but that's an exciting approach. And on top of that, uh, we've got mRNA vaccines, which make the host produce the protein and then the host produce the antibody response, which unfortunately leads to various host responses, including myocarditis and all sorts of myositis issues and headaches and and so on, uh, which so it can cause moderately severe uh, symptoms in a lot of people, it would appear. But when I go to the TGA website and look at what's being reported, the, the numbers are actually low. It's probably about 2.1% are reported to TGA, but that's going to be an underestimate of mm. moderate to severe disease. Uh, that's interesting in itself, uh, but I think very much an underestimate anecdotally, and I'm sure GPs hear this all the time from their patients, you know, they've had people have had to take time off work, or uh, they get um, the symptoms of long COVID, which, you know, and again, that's a whole other area that needs mm. to be looked at and treatments need to be afforded there. We need antivirals desperately. And we've got Plaxlovid, which seems to be the best of them at the moment that uh, is uh, working. But unfortunately, we need to be really careful about contraindications, particularly in people over 70 that may well be on a variety of, of medications that may interfere with, or Plaxlovid may interfere with them and vice versa. Uh, and there might well be some adverse reactions that are not very pleasant. Unfortunately, some of the other antivirals are not that efficient. They're not that uh, good when it comes to efficacy. Uh, so uh, we do need more work done on antivirals, and it's a pity a lot more work wasn't focused on that rather than vaccines in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Vaccines can only go so far and are not the answer to a pandemic, not the complete answer. If they can't stop transmission, then it's clearly not an answer. Mm. It, it's, it's only going to help those that are vulnerable or unhealthy in uh, some way. And this is why Atagi, you know, had trouble, I think, even recommending a fourth or fifth dose. It's even why mRNA manufacturers have trouble recommending a fourth and fifth dose. The data isn't there. The data isn't there to say that there's a benefit 
a clear benefit. And so people under 30 are not recommended to have a fourth or fifth dose mm-hmm. because the benefit is marginal. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to horses for courses. We need to look at vaccines that are going to be more useful for different age groups. We all know that if those under five, um, those going through puberty, adults that are healthy, adults that are unhealthy, uh, older adults with immunosenescence, whether healthy or unhealthy, and probably more on medications, all these people are different immunologically. And so if they're different immunologically, there will there'll be different reactions, whether you're talking about positive or negative reactions by the immune response. It's the immune response that causes the reactions, and we need to ameliorate those immune responses in uh, some way, looking at various drugs. This is a whole area that we haven't looked at properly, and it's time that this was looked at properly again, and also particularly the use of antiviral drugs. We need to move into a different direction. Yes, we need work to continue with new vaccines, new ideas. People are looking at oral vaccines that where the virus might grow in the GI tract. People are looking at various killed vaccines, but the efficacy of those has been pretty poor. Chinese vaccines, for example, efficacy is around 30% by the time you look at real-world data. And remember also, as we've discussed before, David, that efficacy uh, trials use uh, selected healthy people. It's not real-world data. When it goes into the real world, it can be anyone and everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the age groups that Atagi and others recommend. But it might be people with underlying disease that they don't even know of. Um, or there might be First Nation people or, or people with other issues. It might be Down syndrome people and so on. So you get very different responses in those age groups. And phase three trials on efficacy do not tell us about effectiveness, whereas the real world data uh, does tell us about effectiveness in the wider population. I mean, I'm of the view, and again, it won't be shared by everyone. It's a bit radical. I just don't think that healthy people no matter what age, should be getting these vaccines at this time until we find better ones because they do not stop transmission. We're better off saving our antivirals and vaccines for those that need them, those that are vulnerable, focusing on those groups and educating the whole community with a little common sense when it comes to the use of masks and restrictions in certain places. I'm not saying all the time, but um, obviously in closed community settings or situations, like a bus or a tram, a plane or a hospital or a nursing home, you need to be careful and really educate the community not to be complacent when it comes to hand washing, mask wearing, social distancing in particular situations. I know it's a hard ask, but how well have we done this? Not so well. We were very good at getting a big stick in the beginning and say, do this, do that, and people had to comply or lock them down, all of which was counterproductive. We didn't educate them as to why you need to do this. And I've mentioned it before on this program. I was, I'm still stunned in a way by a, a virology meeting I went to in 1984 and, and I was one of the key speakers. And my host met me at Narita Airport and took me on a bullet train to get to the conference venue. And I asked him why this one lady at the back of the train was wearing a mask. Everybody was standing. One lady was there with a mask and I said, is it because of pollution or is she afraid of getting ill or something like this? And he said, no. He said she's wearing a mask because she's not feeling well and it's considered a matter of courtesy in Japan to wear a mask if you're not feeling well and you still have to go to work or take a tram for some reason. I mean, if you're really unwell, you stay at home. If you're just feeling a little bit off, just pop on a mask 
people will keep their distance and they know that you've done that as a matter of courtesy to the community. And I thought that was a magnificent answer. Mm. How wonderful is that? And if we could educate our five-year-olds that this is a matter of courtesy to the whole community, educate our patients that way, then those kinds of changes of attitudes would have dramatic effects in the community when it comes to virus spread. We, we saw what happened when we used masks to influenza, let alone COVID. Influenza basically disappeared. We saw what happened to RSV. It almost disappeared. They're back now mm. because there are no restrictions because we have become complacent. Um, and it's these attitudes that need to change, in my view. Gary, you're touching on a lot of issues, and let me try and summarise. The first is that I must tell you that um, forever and a day, there there was the Gary Groman mantra from the start, which was your personal issues and masks and social distancing and hand washing. You have never failed to tell us about that. The the second are some very interesting things you've said here, uh, which is that, you know, um, you're looking at the fact that vaccines are not the answer. They don't stop the infections. You're not recommending the fourth and fifth dose because you're thinking that uh, there's no clear benefit to it. And that we're going to look at horses for courses and different vaccines for different age groups and that uh, antivirals do have a role to play. But at the same time, none of these trumps looking after ourselves. I'm just wondering again, because we are hearing all this cacophony of voices with regard all of them, is that one of the reasons why you keep saying that the CDC is so important? Uh, because when you only hear one voice, other voices pop up elsewhere and it's hard for us to evaluate them. It's very difficult to evaluate it. And there's lots of eminent people out there on YouTube and uh, so on. I'll just be, while uh, before I forget, I'll just have not a correction, but just an emphasis that when I say the fourth and fifth doses don't really have any benefit, I'm talking about healthy people, not those that are vulnerable. I think it is essential uh, that they, at the moment at least, do get regular vaccination if uh, they're in a vulnerable group. But if you're in a what I call a healthy group, then I think the benefit is very, very small. And Atagi has confirmed that, and many scientific papers have confirmed that. It's very difficult to realise a benefit out of the data for healthy people, uh, but it's certainly important for those that are vulnerable, no question. So, so I'm hearing what you're saying now is that if you're healthy and you have no underlying disease or any chronic diseases, and looking at the fact that there are so many people now with the subclinical infections, if you like, sort of huge herd immunity out there, especially in Australia now, you're really saying, look, guys, if you actually keep away from crowded areas and don't wear and, and wear a mask in the right places, and you really don't have the fourth or fifth dose, and you just wait to see what comes next is probably an appropriate response. Well, you know, I think Omicron and its variants are actually almost vaccine viruses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it's kind of the virus we had to have. Um, you know, we have many adenoid enteroviruses that we get every day or every second day, and they're constant in the community, constantly being passed around. They don't necessarily cause disease and many other viruses as well. This is important because it keeps our immune systems uh, healthy and gives us some protection against new adenoid enteroviruses that might arise. Mm-hmm. Well, the same's going to happen with uh, Omicron. Omicron isn't that special. We tend to catastrophize every sub-variant that arises. We haven't seen a new variant in over a year. Uh, sub-variant Omicron viruses are there, 
and certainly there are mutations every time there's a replication. Uh, so that we expect. And at the moment, there's, you know, BQ, various iterations of BQ wandering around North America, various iterations of BF7 uh, wandering around Africa, more BQs in Europe, BA 2.75 that we've heard a lot about in our area, XBB in Asia and Australia and other places. But there's no one subvariant dominating, is there? Not one. Uh, different areas of the world have different subvariants arising. And what happens is that the press and those who listen to YouTube and social media catastrophize, catastrophize the whole thing out of all proportion, just because a new subvariant has appeared. But the fact is, David, the vaccines are fine. They're holding up. There might be some diminishment in immunogenicity, but there's no great increase in deaths, the uh, death rate or hospitalization rates or severity. If anything, they're falling. And the more subclinical infections that go around, that people will have whatever immunity they have. And we've yet to elucidate that because we don't even know the correlates of protection. But if they've actually had the infection, either subclinically, clinically, mildly or severely, then there will be an antibody response. And it doesn't just disappear because there'll be a T-cell response. Immunogenicity wanes. That happens with all viruses. Of course it wanes. And then you need to consider uh, B-cell, uh, memory B-cells after that and so on. I just want you to now look at a different population. Uh, you did say that the sign effect vaccine is about 30% effective, however you describe that. And now we have the, as you like, the opening up uh, of China in a population that's really only vaccinated with the homegrown vaccine. It's an interesting experiment. How do you think it's going to go? Well, I, I worry about China. They currently have reported nearly 10 million cases and 30,000 deaths. I suppose the good news there is, again, the case fatality rate is low, but I don't think it's due to the vaccine particularly. Their vaccines that they've used are quite poor compared to the ones that we have used um, in Australia and uh, other parts of the Western world or developed world. Uh, but they insist on using their own vaccine for various reasons. It could be an issue of national pride or something like this. But their zero COVID policy, as all zero COVID policies have failed. And now the virus will come back with the ventures because you have a, a poorly immunized population and now you've and they've released all restrictions. So of course the virus is going to pop up because they forget the subclinical infection. The virus is being passed around all the time. So their daily cases are now at an all-time high. They've put in severe lockdowns, which will cause these other issues that we've already been through of various um, issues from psychological uh, through to economic, uh, through to other health issues, for example, um, undiagnosed disease or operations yeah. that might be needed being postponed. But the difference they've had is that they've had massive protests. And what's happened through the massive protests, which didn't happen in many other parts of the world, is that they've forced the relaxation of this zero COVID policy but their vaccines, they've got eight vaccines registered in China. Their efficacy is between 30 and 50% at best, mm -hmm. but their effectiveness is around 30% or less. And I'm talking it up here. <laughs> and they have a reluctance to use mRNA vaccines for the AstraZeneca. It's a pity because they would give much better, better protection, particularly to their older population. But they are using antivirals, they are using sanitizers, they are using some social distancing that will halt spread. 
And the difficulty for the rest of us in the world is that as this virus spreads in China, we all worry about new subvariants and possibly a new variant arising. Mm. And uh, this is a concern. And so we need to keep an eye on China and try and help China as much as possible. Uh, hopefully, um, they will embrace the use of better vaccines and do sensible things when it comes to lockdown rather than have a forced lockdown. Uh, these mandated things never, ever work, no matter what country, no matter where. There's always protests at the end, mm -hmm. and very severe disease mm -hmm. that they'll also find are happening. Uh, I haven't looked at the flu data for China, but I bet you there'll be a wave of influenza as well and probably a wave of RSV and maybe some other respiratory viruses, and we'll just have to wait and see. They're coming into their winter, of course, uh, so they've got double trouble there. They may well have a triple pandemic. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, reporting from China isn't as good as places like Europe and America, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. You won't get very good reporting out of China. You just have to keep on the data, uh, a lookout on the data as it comes through to the World Health Organization. A couple of issues. Um, the first is you're saying 10 million cases now. It probably, just thinking about it, won't be long before it becomes 100 million or more. And when you spoke about this subvariant soup that's occurring around the world in countries that are mainly well vaccinated, uh, China not being well vaccinated with a lot of transmission and disease. And you did say that there's a concern of new variants arising in China. This variants may may or may not well be uh, Omicron or uh, related and therefore quite new to us. Yeah, that's the concern. It's a good reminder, David, as again, we've spoken about a few times now, this is a global problem. It's never a local problem. It's not a local problem in Sydney or Perth or Beijing or London or the Americas. It's a global problem. And different things are going to happen in different places around the globe. So we need, in the same way as we need an Australian CDC, we need a world CDC, or they call it the World Health Organization, but we need more leadership there. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that from someone who's worked for them for a long time, but we need <clears throat> leadership that everybody will follow, including China. And uh, this is so important. And, you know, I know WHO does its best and it's not an easy role, but we're in a global uh, situation. We're in one boat. Yeah. There's a problem in China or Africa or anywhere else in the world. There's a problem for us. There's yeah. a problem for You're us. talking often about vaccine equity and excess. Um, this is not about vaccine equity and excess. This is about a central decision that's yes. affecting 1 billion people. So whilst we can see that need, we can't respond to it because it's not our decision now. Exactly. And that's a pity. <laughs> it really is a pity. Some countries will just want to go it alone and do it themselves, and they have every right because they're a sovereign nation. Uh, no doubt about that. But I just hope the countries who decide to go it alone look to the good advice of the World Health Organization or places like CDC in the US or other major institutions. It's very, very important. And China have had a good look at what's happened around the world. They should yeah. be able to make good decisions. They've seen the wave go from China through Europe, have devastating effects in Italy, yes. other parts of Europe, then go to the US, have devastating effects there, and from there go around the world. They've seen Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon and others arise. They've yes. seen Omicron arise. Uh, it's now overtaken the world. We're 100% Omicron now. There's no 
hard order, if there's any delta around, it'd be 0.000 something percent. So all the other iterations of the virus have disappeared. Hmm. We now have Omicron, which is far less severe, but still quite infectious, um, almost acting as a vaccine virus, as I said. So China have had the benefit of viewing all that, as we did too, in a way. Uh, we saw Alpha, Beta, Gamma arise before we got hit with Delta and then Omicron uh, and then as various subvariants. So they've got all the information. Hopefully they can make good decisions there, which will then protect the rest of the world. We are all in one boat. If a new variant arises there, everything we've just seen in the last three years, and I hate to say this, could simply happen again, David, okay. if we get another variant. And I don't want to put out the sound of fear at all because I think Omicron will prevail. But if there was a new variant that came out, like a brand new SARS-CoV-2, then we'd be back to square one and we'd be in wartime again. Although the advantage would be we'd know what to do with social restrictions and we would have equipment like a tests, PCR and the rest, uh, and we would have producers that can make masks and uh, we could close the borders briefly uh, in terms of airline traffic and all that. I mean, there would be something in place and we do have antiviral drugs and a good supply of other medications. That would be the only difference. But we, you know, we need to be careful not to go back to square one here. I think you've just given voice to one of my deepest concerns, um, Gary. Well, it's uh, every virologist's concern, but I, having watched Omicron now for over a year, I think it's here to stay. And I'd be surprised, I might have to eat my words, but I would be surprised if there's another major variant and we move on from Omicron. I think there'll just be Omicron subvariants, and that's my hope. And that will end up being the virus we had to have and um, end up being the vaccine virus, so to speak, together with our vaccines and antivirals and social distancing that we do will help at least control the pandemic to a steady state infection uh, throughout the community. Gary, I'm just going to finish off with um, uh, another controversial issue uh, of late I hear from many different sources that the um, lab leak theory has gained some new life. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, um, it's important at one level to know what happened in terms of the origin. If it is due to gain-of-function work that that particular lab was doing, and we know they did that work, that's a pity that the virus somehow escaped. Does it help us in terms of controlling the pandemic, whether we know it came from a particular lab or whether it came naturally from bat to human. I don't think it particularly helps us decide what we do now in this present moment to fight this virus globally. It's unfortunate if it started in a lab and it would be good if all that documentation was made available, if that's the case, that would be unfortunate. And we'd need an explanation to make sure we'd plug up that hole so it would yeah. never happen again. Mm -hmm. But function, I think, is an important set of experiments to do in the right places with the right ethics committee. It is important to understand how viruses change and how we could predict how they change and make vaccines in the future. We kind of future-proof ourselves in theory if we can do that kind of work. So I'm not against gain of function as such, but it needs super high security, which we have say in various labs in Australia and the US where this kind of work might go on. But then we have to know why it went on. Uh, we need the data from the various whistleblowers that have recently come out, uh, and it would be good if that's the case, underlining if, uh, that the labs involved, you know, showed the data to everybody and actually explained what happened. Yeah. But it is still in the realm of conspiracy theory until we see data. And at the moment, I think we have to still assume that it's a natural bat-to-human evolution, but a very unusual one. 
bat to human transmission is not uncommon. There are many viruses, as you know, that bats can transmit to a human, coronaviruses being one of them. It's very likely we think now that the 1895 pandemic was probably a coronavirus and not a flu. We know about the 1918 pandemic uh, and how severe that H1 was, and that was clearly uh, bird to human, bird and pig to human reassortments. Uh, we've seen the same again in um, 47, 48, 57, 58 with H2 and then H3. We've seen bird flu arise. We've seen H1 come back. We've seen lots going on in the influenza space in 100 years. Mm. We can track it and follow it. Uh, and we're in a very good position when it comes to influenza because we have antiviral drugs and vaccines already. So the main concern now are novel zoonotic infections like the one we've just seen. We've seen SARS before. We've seen MERS before. All under control. We've seen H7N9 viruses come in China and also entirely under control. Hopefully, we can get the truth uh, behind the SARS-CoV-2, where it originated from. But it still won't change what mm. we do now. It still won't change what we do now. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's the important focus rather than the focus in the past, in my view. Uh, I think uh, what I'm reading seems to say the same is that it won't change many things, but um, it's just basically saying, look, we're not saying one is greater than the other, but the fact is that both the zoonotic transmission and the lab leak, they can sit on the table as opposing alternatives, but um, uh, it's no longer just completely wacko uh, conspiracy. For oh, the sure, sure. But, you know, the problem with beliefs and bias is um, we tend to feed our own echo chambers. And, yes, um, you know, this is a problem. So we really and truly have to stick to the data. And that's what medical and scientific people are very good at. Let's stick to the data. Yep. Unfortunately, there are, I think, too many scientists uh, and medical scientists out there saying different things and spruiking their own particular bias. And that I think is unfortunate. Ivermectin was a good example. But now we've got data to show that ivermectin, chloroquines and so on are not effective compared to placebo. We've got the right data now. Mm. But early on, you know, unfortunately, there was an association. Everybody jumped on it, et cetera, et cetera. We need to do these things more carefully, more slowly, and so we can get the right data and yep. then the right interpretation of that and application of that to patients. Gary, it's always great talking to you. And I look forward to somehow you and others of your friends really getting this CDC concept rolling in Australia. Uh, thank you, David. There's a lot of people who really want this to happen. So hopefully uh, the current Commonwealth government will uh, be able to affect this and uh, put it into practice. So we'll just have to wait and see. And until we're speaking again, Gary, I will repeat the Gary Groman mantra, uh, wear masks appropriately, avoid crowds and wash your hands and stay away from, if you like, unventilated spaces. So important, particularly for vulnerable people. So important. Still, still. Thank you so much for your time, Gary. Thank you, David. All the very best for Christmas. And you too. Merry Christmas and enjoy your time away. Yeah, thank you. All the very best. Bye. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best 
possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.